Andrew, and this is Stephen Knight. Welcome to the show, Stephen. How are you doing? Very well, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Good to see you again. It's good to see you. I've done lots of stuff before with Stephen. Stephen is the godless spell checker. Stephen is the night tube on YouTube. Go check out his stuff. Lots of stuff about sort of secularism and anti-conspiracy theories. And well, actually, I shouldn't tell some of you guys that. But, you know, he does lots of good stuff. And by the way, where's Sean? Where is this enigmatic, elusive, incredible, hairy-backed creature that we so love and adore. Uh, Sean is around the country right now doing some quite incredible work, making podcasts and things based on your suggestions um, all around, going city to city. Ash has put this all together, the lovely producer, and uh, he's going to be making this like really professionally filmed stuff. He's the hardest working guy I've ever met. It's, abs- it's just completely ridiculous off the charts. And it's a privilege for us to be able to take over his show today um, and we're going to be doing so for the next couple of weeks so get used to us it's not quite you know the same as uh, as uh, as Sean but uh, we'll do a good job of it I'll just run you through who we've got today we've got Mark Shaw at six o'clock um, I'll be covering that first time in Atwood Unleashed and he wrote collateral damage uh, so he claims that there has been um, no cover-up of Robert Kennedy's complicity Uh, Sorry, I'll say that again. He claims that if there had been no cover-up of Robert Kennedy's complicity in the murder of Marilyn Monroe in 1962, and he had been prosecuted based on compelling evidence at the time, the assassination of JFK by Bobby's enemies would not have happened. Changing the course of history and preventing the murder of media icon Dorothy Kilgallen. Now that sounds quite complex and intricate and mad, but I'm sure that will be explained to us in a way that we can all stomach it and all take it in and enjoy. The JFK stuff's always really interesting, and I know a lot of people are really excited to hear about that i certainly am and then we'll get on 6 30 to the dark journalist and he does all sorts of discussing ufos and also his thoughts on the jfk assassination so if you like jfk assassination stuff then you're going to love this i was in dallas not at the time obviously because i wasn't born yet but i went to dallas and saw that stuff and that was quite interesting seven o'clock Stephen will be taking over and doing a brilliant job, I'm sure. And it will be M.K. Davis who's coming on, a Bigfoot researcher, one of the most revered, acclaimed Bigfoot search researchers there are. Uh, really interested to see how Stephen prods and probes him and all that stuff. Uh, 7.30, Jeffrey Nadolny will be coming on uh, to talk about all sorts of deep dives into bizarre theories and government cover-ups. So Stephen will be tackling those with him as well. We move to Patreon. For those of you who sign up to Patreon, do sign up to Sean's wonderful Patreon. Uh, Elena Danan is going to be on to talk about how she was abducted by aliens at the age of nine. Uh, the aliens were from a place called Zed Reticuli, and her she was then rescued by the Galactic Federation of Worlds. It sounds quite out there, but that's what this show is about. It's exciting and interesting, so I hope you've sort of come with us to Patreon for that. And then we'll get Alex Stein on to talk about uh, challenging woke culture and why it's important to make light of today's culture wars and then finally on patreon as we're all tired and slipping into the dark night of sleep or whatever it's going to be chris armitage uh who has a master's of science in homeland security and he'll be talking about forced sex transporting is the word we're using on youtube because another word that you might think of with cars and things when they stop at red lights uh can sometimes be flagged and get certain channels like sean's in trouble but transporting sex people by 
force. So that's good. And just to tell those of you who are listening to the Sean Atwood True Crime podcast, because that's this is going out on that as well. I'm Andrew Gold. I'm a former BBC journalist, and I now have a podcast called On the Edge with Andrew Gold, where I talk about all this kind of things. Do come and check it out. And if you do, say that you came from Sean's stuff and all that, because I like that. I always tell Sean that you came from there. And Stephen, why don't you give us a little bit of an intro to, to yourself in that manner as well? Certainly. Bravo. Great job, Andrew, by the way. There's a lot going on there. I'm very excited about hearing from some of these people, for sure. Uh, Yeah, I'm Stephen Knight. I'm a blogger, podcaster, YouTuber, sometimes independent reporter. I like to focus around topics that um, either transgress or promote freedom of expression and try and dig into what the truth of the matter is. So that's my general interest. Well, there you go. And I'm a big fan of your stuff. Um, got this from this this abusive fan right now, Ashley Meikle, who appears to have the same name and face as the producer of this show, going, where is Atwood? Angrily, where is Atwood? He is, he's probably listening in. He'll definitely listen to this later, especially as he's uploading it to all sorts of places. So everybody watch what they say and watch how you behave. So we're going to be talking over the next 10 minutes about stuff in the news. Ash wanted us to talk about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, but I want to give you the choice of that or Ricky Gervais and cancel culture and comedy because those are the two big things at the moment. Oh, I'm just trying to think or which one will make me the least least angry. Um, <laughs> I suppose with the, the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard thing, I think I first convinced myself I was looking at it because I had some sort of academic interest in defamation and where the line is. And no, it's just been really entertaining, which then makes me feel yeah. bad because it is a a court case that does involve potential assault, sexual abuse, things like that. How do you feel about big celebrity-based court battles being televised in that way, essentially becoming disposable entertainment? It's a really interesting point, actually, because I'm writing this book about the psychology of secrets and how secrets are uh, gradually dying, the idea of a secret. And what's really interesting in that case isn't just now that Depp and Heard stuff is all out in the open. It's also the sort of the side effects of that. So you get stuff like, um, I keep forgetting his name, Paul Bettany, who, did you see, he sent texts joking about, you know, we should burn the witch about Amber Heard. And now those were read out. And it started making me think, oh, God, what if I send... Because I send horrible things to friends of mine. Um, even just before we came on, the, the amount even of just to me. Ex- <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, and I, what I do, I say horrible things. I say, before Sean comes on, usually, the most horrible things I can in the seconds before he goes live to try and make him laugh. And he often does start laughing. But imagine if that stuff, if somebody has a court case in 50 years and it all gets read out, what does that say about our privacy? Yeah, if I was made to read out various messages in my WhatsApp groups in a court of law, that would not look good for me. There's also something about things void of context being placed as text that make them a million times worse as well. Uh, I think there's two things that have to happen, really. I think either we have to engender this idea to people, especially young people, not to send or write down anything you wouldn't be comfortable having read out in court, or the culture needs to change a little bit where we don't judge people by specific incidents that don't give the whole picture. I don't th- I think I don't think any of us are exempt from this idea of saying something off color in our lives. Yeah. What what boring people as well, you know? Don't you want people yeah. who swear and say things that transgress societal norms, right? 
But I suppose, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if we would just want to move on and we flitting, flitting around a little bit, but we did talk, you did mention at the top of the show, perhaps talking about Ricky Gervais's uh, new yeah. special super niche. But I suppose this ties back into the idea of using irony for the purposes of humor. You know, as Gervais puts it, uh, saying the wrong thing for a laugh because we all know what the right thing is. Uh, and that's very much what his new special does. And that's caused a lot of controversy in the press uh, and on Twitter, I'm sure. I think we, we've both spoke before about our um, mutual admiration for the work of Ricky Gervais. Uh, I think we both saw Supernature live uh, at different dates. I think I, I saw it yeah. pre-pandemic. That's how how long ago it was. It's finally landed on Netflix. And I don't know about you, but I remember watching it live and I could almost tick off and pinpoint the flashpoints that would be taken and turned into some sort of controversy. Not because they're controver controversial per se, but I could see how they may have been misrepresented or how people may have portrayed them in this current climate of uh, sort of outrage culture and, and offence taking where, where stand-up comedy is uh, concerned especially. Well, I think a lot of the laughter you could say is outrage is, is sorry is, is relief isn't it is relief that you can you, somebody's finally said something in a public sphere that we're so scared so many people might say just between their friends which again you should be careful about because you never know when that's going to end up in a court case but that that is being said aloud and that we can all just agree and nobody's actually going okay now let's go and attack trans people now we're going to go and attack chinese people or whatever he was saying in, in his thing it's just like oh someone said stuff and language and language didn't hurt and kill us you know yeah and the the peculiar thing is i mean and i would consider myself this way and i certainly think it's true of ricky that he's a very liberal progressive individual in general i would say he'd be an ally to trans rights uh mm. of course he, he has a strong sense of uh individual liberty i think it comes from that sort of working class uh upbringing of one person one voice one vote kind of thing it's the only sort of power you can you can muster in them circumstances and it's especially important to have when you don't have anything else so i think he understands that but i think where people sort of um forget is that he's a comedian and it's his job to make jokes and make people laugh and every subject is is a valid target for that and if you look at his jokes they're very clearly constructed it's never at the expense of the quote-unquote transgender community as a whole or or muslims as a whole he's, he's taking shots at religious conservatism dogmas ideologies power structures uh cultural norms you know worldviews all sorts of things it's never he's never never gets up there and starts basically just trashing a certain type of person um he's making jokes about things in the peripherals uh and it's resonated from what i can see with uh, both sides of the camp yeah i would just say to the person who says ricky doesn't dare to make jokes about jews he constantly makes jokes about jews and the holocaust in particular so that's just utterly un founded isn't it yeah that's yeah he hates the jews no that's not true made that up see that yeah. was a joke that was that was me being ironic <laughs> he makes jokes about everyone and and he often points out that like people will come afterwards and say like you know i was offended because you made jokes about dyslexia and he was like but you were fine with the holocaust ones the the fat ones the this ones that ones it's always that your specific one the thing that you hold dear to you you don't want people to make jokes about but then when it's about someone else you know you don't care yeah, I was thinking about this today because obviously I, for me personally, and I appreciate this is subjective, but the best kind of humor is where the punchline blindsides you and you're not expecting it. It's took a left turn and that, that makes you laugh involuntary. And then all of a sudden there's a followed by a quick gasp because you realize what you just laughed at. And for a comedian to construct that so well, 
they have to be ultra aware of what the correct and moral position is to pull the rug from under you in that way. P only people who are actually ethical individuals can make these kinds of jokes. Otherwise, you'd just be Jim Davidson. You'd just be Bernard Manning. You'd mm. just be Roy Chubby Brown uh, taking pot yeah. shots at the expense of uh, minorities uh, uh, and such. We we, sh we should say those are quite British. Um, oh, yeah. Um, references aren't they so they they were just people who were quite sort of uh, uh old-fashioned and right-wing and and perhaps racist back in the day some of gervais's stuff does sort of go very close to that and then he's afterwards sort of shows he was being ironic is there ever a sort of point where i don't know i mean i'm thinking particularly of the ling ling uh about ringing the chinaman stuff and he knows how sort of hacked or is it hacked is that the word yeah that, that hack, hackneyed that that joke is um but is there, is there ever a case to sort of say, well, hang on, you, you're just making the Roy Chubby Brown jokes, but then laughing afterwards to say, you know, you didn't mean it? Potentially, but I'm not entirely sure that kind of thing. I mean, it, it is, it's poking fun at stereotypes, isn't it, in a way? Mm. And it mm. it is, it is the way it's, the way it's constructed it is to subvert the audience's expectations of it. It's not just done to mock, uh, I think, Chinaman was the, was the phrase used in the show. He knows what all the wrong words are. He knows where all the lines are so he can dip his toe in and out of it. Um, I, think it I think it's fair game. I mean, it, at the end of the day, it one of the reasons that joke was so funny, and I actually got one of the biggest laughs from because it was so childish and silly and unexpected yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. That spot, I think you're spot on there. Um, we got a great. Did you see the comment that I, you know, I don't, I don't always look at the comments, but one caught my eye saying, "Sean is fabulous." Mm -hmm. uh, shouldn't miss a show, but he gave us two good-looking guys to fill in. I don't pick the ones we put up here. Ash insists he's in the background saying, "You've got to put this one up." Two good-looking guys there. Um, articulate, intelligent discussion, and eye candy. I wouldn't usually read that kind of thing out, Stephen, but Ash forced me to. What do you think of that? I'm going to uh, print screen it if that's okay. <laughs> put it on <laughs> my fridge. Right, Stephen, you're going to be back in an hour. I'm going to, I'm going to sort of what a log you, log you off, toggle you off. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll see you in an hour, mate. See you soon. Right, that was Stephen, and I'm about to bring in the lovely Mark Shaw. Mark, how are you doing? Well, all right, Ricky Gravaz and Johnny Depp, and now me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, you know, you're, you're Ricky Gervais and, and Mark Shaw, that's what it's all about. Where are you talking to us from today? I'm in uh, Santa Clara, California, just south of San Francisco. And you guys are good looking. I, I agree with this. So uh, that oh, was a good hey, comment. You're a handsome, handsome man yourself, Mark. Let's not get around. <laughs> Let's not beat about the bush. Let me, let me ask you, what's, um, what's your background and why did you want to write Collateral Damage? Well, well, a uh, uh, checkered background, uh, uh, Andrew, but uh, started as a criminal defense lawyer and, uh, uh, you know, mostly all murder cases. And so I'm always looking at motive and all of that and never even really thought about writing any books. But then uh, I, I became a network television analyst over here. The first one was for the Mike Tyson trial back in 1992, uh, the rape trial. And I covered that for USA Today and CNN, ABC, all of that. And uh, I wrote my first book, uh, Down for the Count, which um, uh, I didn't agree with that verdict. They had very little evidence about uh, Marilyn or about uh, uh, the victim in that case. And so that started me off. And then I just kept writing and writing and writing. Uh, collateral damage basically uh, is, is the, 
Um, I never, never really thought I would even write it. Uh, I had learned about the JFK assass assassination, obviously, when I was in college, but I never really was interested in it that much. And then uh, I had practiced law with a famous lawyer in San Francisco that many of your older audience may know may, named Melvin Belli. And he represented Jack Ruby, who shot Lee Harvey Oswald. And uh, I started to look into Belli when I wrote a biography of him and found out that his representation of Ruby uh, was, um, you know, uh, inept. Uh, he, he really, uh, it was kind of a whitewash. He never went after uh, the defense of Ruby, uh, didn't let him testify, uh, made him look crazy and all of that. And so that's what got me into all of this. And then I found out through a clue. I think you're, you're an investigative reporter in some ways. So as I am, and a historian as I am, and so I found out that there was this reporter named Dorothy Kilgallen, uh, who was uh, famous for being on a quiz show called What's My Line uh, on, on CBS every Sunday night, but then I found out that she had actually been at the Jack Ruby trial. Uh, she was the only reporter to really go against the grain with J. Edgar Hoover yelling Oswald alone all the time, but she got to interview Ruby and all of that, and uh, that led her to New Orleans, and she started to look into the JFK assassination, not believing the Oswald alone theory, but believing that there was a gangster in New Orleans named Carlos Marcello, who Robert Kennedy had deported uh, shortly after becoming attorney general. Uh, that was a double cross because uh, they had helped uh, uh, JFK, JFK become president, and they were supposed to leave those gangsters alone, but Bobby went after Marcello. And so... Uh, Dorothy wrote all these columns, some of which I have, basically, uh, you know, saying that uh, there was no way that uh, it was Oswald alone, that Marcello uh, was the one who had orchestrated the death of John F. Kennedy to render Bobby Kennedy a powerless, which is exactly what happened. He never went after those gangsters again. And so uh, that got me more interested. I then wrote denial of justice about all of that, which included the Ruby trial transcripts and the fact that that whole uh, business about Jack Ruby just happening, happening to end up at the Dallas Police Department basement uh, and shoot Ruby or shoot Oswald was bunk, that he had planned to be there. He had friends in his uh, Dallas Police Department help him get into the basement. He had told someone, I will be there and all of that. And so that was, uh, I had now looked into the JFK assassination. I looked into Dorothy Kilgallen's death because shortly after she went to New Orleans and went back to New York City and told her hairdressers if the wrong people knew what I know about the JFK assassination would cost me my life. I'm afraid for my life and family. Um, I always get a chill when I talk about this. She was found dead in her Manhattan uh, townhouse, uh, a staged death scene, uh, no way that she would have ever committed suicide. She was Catholic, and so that was obviously a homicide. I looked into that and was able to prove that Marilyn was killed because she was actually the reporter who knew too much, which was the name of that best-selling book uh, released, uh, what, three or four or five years ago. So I was wow. done with all of that, but I, I kept getting, uh, and I'm sure I'll get these kinds of emails perhaps from your listeners, and my email is on my website, markshawbooks.com that said, uh, hey, is there a, a connection between the deaths of Marilyn Monroe, John F. Kennedy, and Dorothy Kilgallen? They died within 40 months of each other. Marilyn, 62, August, JFK, 63, November, Dorothy, 65, November. And I didn't think there was a connection. 
But I began to look into that, and uh, we can get into that now if you'd like to, as to how I ended up connecting the three deaths and then pointing to the fact that Bobby Kennedy was actually instrumental in the death of Marilyn Monroe. Wow. I mean, that's all just fascinating. This is really explosive stuff and a lot of stuff that none of us know anything about. Um, like I was saying before, I was in Dallas. I had a look around. I went to all the sort of monuments and stuff like that. And right. this is all right. stuff that's just beyond any of my understanding and stuff. Um, that What's My Line thing? I watched that sometimes. I didn't even know much about it, but it's on YouTube. You can find all the retro ones. And I saw sort of exactly. Salvador Dali on there, Woody Allen, people like that. Really fascinating show. Um, but we'll get into that sort of side of it in a bit. Well, Let's talk a little bit about Marilyn Monroe's affair with Bobby Kennedy. Is that is that sort of you know absolutely certain and that was going on? I don't know enough about the history. Is that is that known right. or is that? Well, Dorothy had become what uh, the New York Post called the most powerful female voice in America. She was syndicated to two hundred newspapers across the country with with uh, her voice of Broadway column. She had "What's My Line" listened to by millions of people on Sunday night. She had a radio show. She was a big deal. And so uh, she had the best sources and everything, as I believe I have in my books, and I have with the new one that's coming out in November called Fighting for Justice, which uh, takes this, uh, what I'm talking about, even to a further uh, extension. So uh, when I started looking into the connection between Dorothy and Marilyn, the first thing that I found, you know, the, uh, your, your listeners may know or may not know, the official verdict regarding Marilyn's death was probable suicide. And, and, a, and an outstanding forensic scientist over here named, um, named Cyril Weck, who's become a good, a good supporter of mine, said in, he's, he's handled 16,000 autopsies, and he never saw that verdict probable suicide. And so uh, I looked into that, but first I found a photograph of Marilyn and Dorothy together. I knew that Marilyn had been to Dorothy's home for parties in Manhattan, but I found this photograph of them on the set of a movie uh, that was being made, I think it was called Let's Call Love or something like that with uh, Yves Montan, a, a picture of the two. And then, you know, Marilyn obviously was supposed to be uh, suicidal. And so the the official verdict was probable suicide and all of that. But there was this column that Dorothy wrote, and, and it was amazing to me because uh, it, it said, and I, I just will read it to you, uh, the headline, Marilyn Monroe has Hollywood talking again. Her health must be improving. She's been attending Hollywood parties and has become the talk of the town again. In California, they're circula circulating a photo of her smiling everywhere. And she's cooking in the sexual uh, appeal department. She's vastly alluring to a handsome gentleman that is bigger than Joe DiMaggio in his heyday. So don't write off Marilyn as finished. Well, the Joe DiMaggio, that's her second husband, uh, the baseball player, the Hall of Famer, uh, New York Yankee slugger. Well, that didn't Simon sound to me, and I'm sure it doesn't sound to you, and it doesn't sound to your listeners like a woman who's about to commit suicide. So I began to look into that. If you want to cover up a murder, and this is what happened in Dorothy's case, the way, easiest way to do it w is with an autopsy. And in Marilyn's death on the morning she died on August 5th, 1962, the first indication in the uh, certificate of death was, was, suicide, or was uh, uh, overdose of drugs. About four hours later, it was changed to probable suicide. Well, that made me even more suspicious of what happened. And like you, when I read that column by Dorothy that basically said a, a gentleman, a bigger name than Joe DiMaggio, I thought if Marilyn was killed, who could be the main suspect in that death? Well, your listeners probably are thinking, well, it was John Kennedy. 
because as you may remember, and you've probably seen the video of her singing happy birthday to uh, JFK on his 45th birthday in Madison Square Garden and all of that. Well, they had an affair. And it was short-lived, unfortunately, because Joe Kennedy, the father, said, look, you're going to run for president. We don't need headlines with you and, uh, and, uh, and, and Marilyn Monroe. So then I think you know that in, in any investigation you do, there finally is a, a clue. Something happens that changes everything. And that is what I'll show up. You won't be able to read it, but this is a CIA document, super secret, uh, issued on uh, August 3rd, 1962, which was just two days before Marilyn died. It is wiretap conversation of Marilyn's conversations with, with Robert Kennedy and also Marilyn's conversations with Dorothy Kilgallen. And I've substantiated that through various evidence. I only use primary sources. I confirm when I can and all of that. And so I've done done that. So in this is a very lethal CIA document. Because what does it, what does it show? First, it talks about the fact that there is this relationship between uh, the two Kennedy brothers and, and Marilyn. And it talks about the fact that um, she has been privy to information that they have provided for her, either through pillow talk or bragging or whatever, you know, the egotistical Kennedy brothers. And basically it says that, you know, after uh, uh, there was this love affair, well, let's talk about the love affair first. The second page of the document, which is this page, Robert, Ken Robert Kennedy has been having a romance and sex affair over a period of time with Marilyn Monroe. Uh, he, he admitted, Robert Kennedy was deeply involved emotionally with Marilyn Monroe and repeatedly promised to divorce his wife, Ethel, to marry Marilyn Monroe. Well, that had taken place, and I knew it had because Bobby was in Los Angeles in the summer of 1962. Uh, he was working on a film for his book, The uh, Enemy Within, about the gangsters. I placed him uh, in, in uh, L.A. during that particular time and all of that. So I knew that that made sense. But in the document, what was gold really for me as an investigative reporter was subject repeatedly called the attorney general and complained the way she was being ignored by the president and his brother. Subject threatened to hold a press conference and would tell all. And this is the one that was that that basically was the reason why she had to be silenced. Subject made references to bases in Cuba and knew of the president's plan to kill Fidel Castro. If they leaked wow. that information to her and she went to the press with this, I mean, that's pretty much almost treason by the Kennedy brothers telling her about that. It would have ruined their careers. Bobby and, and John Kennedy would have had to have left office and all of that. So there, in my mind, is the motive for having to kill Marilyn Monroe and silence her. And then I would take that and look at the evidence that I could find in terms of how they would have orchestrated that death. It's really a, an interesting theory, and I think uh, one of the reasons suicide works so well as as a you know potential cover up um, is because by that point her behaviour I might be right in saying I just basing this on movies I've seen over the years was becoming more and more erratic as she was struggling with the fame and the paparazzi and different men in her life. Is that right? Well, I, I will have interrupt you there because an awful lot of that was put out. Uh, Marilyn mm. was a very smart woman. Uh, she was not a dumb blonde. If you read a Collateral Dage and you read uh, a book called Fragments, that includes Marilyn's poetry, 
her writings. I mean, for God's sake, she was a voracious uh, a, a reader. She wrote Ulysses, uh, mm. read Ulysses. I, I had I had trouble reading Ulysses. So she no, was very smart. And there were all these, uh, you know, there's a Netflix documentary about Marilyn out there now. And it talks about all the terrible things that were going on in her life and how bad, you know, her, her mental aspect was. But that really wasn't true. She was on the upswing. Uh, she was going to get rid of the Kennedys. She was going to remarry Joe DiMaggio. She had Broadway offers. She was hoping to come to to London and do some some films over here. So that's what can happen when somebody takes a verdict, suicide, and then decides to match everything to it instead of the other way around. And and that is what the quarrel that I have with reporters today. There's, there's little integrity there because they decide they want this sensational headline and then they match everything to that. Dorothy never did that. I've had all these people around this world say, boy, if we had a reporter like Dorothy Kilgallen today, that's what we need, somebody like that. So I will tell you, uh, if you look at the, the evidence, uh, and, and I have that in collateral damage and also you know, in the new book, Fighting for Justice, you will find out that a lot of that, you know, her friends basically were saying she was on the upswing. Uh, even this um, this producer who was involved in the Netflix documentary said everybody he talked to uh, the last week that Marilyn was alive said she wasn't suicidal. So unfortunately, you know, Marilyn, I've kind of become the voice of Marilyn and of Dorothy with regard to their deaths because I think it's my duty to try to speak up for them because they can't fight back against all that uh, that sort of evidence. So, so you're you are yeah you want to change the I suppose the PR around Marilyn Monroe and her yeah, legacy. She deserves that. And then that. also the Kennedys. I mean, they come across now. Of course, I wasn't around back when the Kennedys were, but they uh, seem to be in many respects portrayed as the good guys. How do you feel about that? Well, I don't. I don't. I I I can't quite agree with that. They were known as womanizers, both of them. Uh, JFK may have been a bit worse with that than Bobby was, but both of them dated all these women. Poor Jackie Kennedy had to go through that. Bobby cheated on his wife. I mean, it was really disappointing that that, that, that happened. And so, you know, as you get uh, the situation with Robert Kennedy in Maryland, now he's in the soup because he knows that she's, I mean, this, this CIA document was given to him. So he knew that she was a threat. She was a time bomb. And as August of uh, August 5th of, of 62 comes along, what does Bobby do? Well, he's not going to be involved in the actual murder of him. He's too big of a coward to do something like that. So he uses the alibi that he's in San Francisco on the day she died. I proved through um, evidence that, that he was in Los Angeles. I have right in front of me the ledger at 20th Century Fox Studio. On the day she died, a helicopter lands. It's, it's uh, Bobby Kennedy and Peter Lawford. Uh, you know, the, 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 the brother of, of, of the uh, who married one of the sisters of the Kennedys. I have a, a, a police account that says uh, Bobby was in a limousine at midnight. And I've been able to prove that he went over to Marilyn's home, begged her not to go to the media. And when she refused that, uh, he was able to orchestrate what happened to Marilyn on the night she died. Uh, the, the verdict was that she swallowed more than 50 pills, which is impossible, basically, uh, in the time frame. There was no glass where she could have ingested those, and I'll leave it to people to look at collateral damage and, and all of that to see exactly how she was m murdered. But uh, basically, it was the fact that there were uh, rectal insertions of these uh, barbiturates 
in, in, in Marilyn's body that caused the death. And, and one of the most incredible things to me is that anybody, whether it's Jane Doe or Marilyn Monroe, is, is, it should get a, a viable autopsy. And in this situation, uh, Thomas Noguchi, who's famous for the Michael Jackson case and all these cases, mm. basically after the autopsy said, well, you know what? I made a few mistakes. I forgot to look at Marilyn's inner organs, some of those. And by the time I knew that happened, imagine this. I, I, by the time I knew this happened, they had destroyed them. So she never really got a fair shake. There was no investigation, just like there was no investigation of Dorothy Kilgallen's death. And in collateral damage, I show more than 50 similarities between these two women, and both of them were denied justice, and I'm going to continue my efforts to get them that justice they deserve. Hmm. I mean, suicides are sort of ripe for both well, controversy, controversy and conspiracy and uh, fiddling around and changing. And I mean, even sort of um, Alan Turing, for example, which seems like an open and oh, shut Oh, yes. Case. So these distortions of history drive me crazy. Andrew. Yeah, 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 yeah. Distortions of history. And in your mind, just to clarify, and for people who have just joined, in your mind, Marilyn Monroe's death was made to look like a suicide, but it was actually the Kennedys who did it to stop her because they had had affairs with her and told her stuff, pillow talk and stuff about stuff about Cuba and stuff like that. Didn't want her coming out with it. And even now, people don't want to talk about this because they want to preserve the angelic image of the Kennedys. Have I gotten this right? Well, yes, you know, people, uh, I get, I get uh, pretty nasty emails because people want to remember Camelot. You know, they want to remember all the good things about the Kennedys. And they did, did some, some good things. There's no question about that. But as a historian, I mean, my, my body of work is being uh, archived at my university, Purdue University. I'm proud of my body of work. And so people, look, I respect your opinion, but the Kennedys were bad people in many ways. And I have more examples in, in collateral and fighting for justice comes out in, in November. And, and it's, it's just amazing that we want to hold on to those things when the, when the truth is facing us right there. And when Marilyn said, you know, what I say, subject to threaten, threatened, subject threatened to, to call a press conference and tell all, she was dead. There's no way they could have ever let Marilyn Monroe have that press conference. Wow. Wow. So then tell me about the, the Rothberg report. What's that? Well, that is that is the CIA document. That's what I've I've oh. called it. And what, what I've said is if you look at this uh, with some common sense, if Bobby Kennedy would have been prosecuted, you said this early, if Bobby Kennedy would have been prosecuted for Marilyn Monroe's death based on the mounds of evidence at the time. All right. He would have uh, been prosecuted, and there wouldn't have been the need for these, this mobster, Carlos Marcello, to have killed JFK to make Bobby powerless because he would have been powerless, and JFK would have never been killed, and Dorothy Kilgallen would have never been murdered because there would have been no JFK assassination to investigate. So, you know, that, that changed the course of history, really, because of Bobby's conduct, uh, both with... Uh, uh, double-crossing the mobsters, and then of eliminating Marilyn Monroe. Hmm, man, what a complex... There you go. What do you think, Andrew? 
<laughs> yeah, I just, I just, I'm, to be honest, my mind's blown a little bit here because it's all stuff I didn't know. I'm trying to get my head around it. Oh, I think people in, you know, in the comments must be a bit, a little bit shocked as well. Really interesting to know about this distortion of of history. So JFK, in your mind, was not, um, you know. But okay, let's get on to the actual uh, murder itself. You know, so Lee Harvey Oswald. You know, so what was it? Him? Who? What? What happened with with his um, assassination? Well, it's just absolutely amazing what can happen. Um, when when JFK died, J. Edgar Hoover was shouting to the world, you know, Oswald alone, Oswald alone. Because if it's a nut like Oswald, then the FBI can't be held accountable. But he knew in his mind of the motive with Carlos Marcello and the mobsters having to get rid of, of uh, JFK so Bobby would be powerless. The only reporter who was going against the grain, and you will read these columns of hers in both of those books, Collateral Damage and uh, The Fighting for Justice, it comes out. She was, she was the only one going against the grain. The Oswald file must not close. We don't, you know, there's much more to this. Just like she did with the columns she wrote about Marilyn Monroe. But at that time, nobody was listening to Dorothy. And so in that situation, they just bought uh, hook, line, and sinker what, what uh, um, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was saying. Oswald, I have shown that he was involved and connected to Mar Marcello. I have shown that Jack Ruby was connected to Marcello. He had all the motive in the world. And I will just tell you also, uh, you know, you've got those three deaths within 40 months. But then in 1968, RFK is, is assassinated, right? Well, I've been able to show, and, and some of that evidence is in the new book, Fighting for Justice, that Sirhan Sirhan is in all likelihood not the one who uh, actually shot RFK. Who had the greatest motive to have gotten rid of RFK? Well, it's Marcello. Why? Because uh, Bobby Kennedy said many times, I thought they would get one of us, but I thought it would get, it would be JFK. And he has, and, and RFK Jr. has said that Bobby Kennedy knew it was Marcello. So if mm -hmm. RFK becomes president, what's the first thing he's going to do? He's going to go after Marcello. So again, we, based just, on motive, if you follow later, this through, Mark, Mark, yeah. for people who've joined later, can we just explain who Marcelo is? Carlos Marcelo, also known as the Little Man, who that is, just for those who are just joining now. Sure, Marcelo uh, had his empire in New Orleans: uh, drugs, uh, prostitution, uh, gaming, whatever it was. He had built an empire uh, it, at that time worth more than in millions of dollars, which is billions of dollars now, and he controlled all of that. And so the moment that RFK became president, he threw him out of the country. He came back, and then Marcelo had his connections in, in, um, in Dallas to a guy named Joe Savello and others and his connections to Ruby and Oswald. And so when they needed to get rid of uh, JFK, he used those connections. I mean, you went to Daily, Pla Daily Plaza. You ever talk about a death trap? I mean, there's only one way in and one way out of that. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't get into how many shots there were and who did this or what. Oswald was involved, I know. And then Ruby was brought in to cover up Oswald's uh, situation. But when you look at motive, and I'm pleased that, you know, there's more, more than 7 million views of my presentations and interviews up on YouTube. And I'm proud to say that, you know, my theories have made sense to people because you, you don't go after the wild theories. I don't use that C word. Uh, C-O-N-S-P-I-R-A-C-Y, if that's spelling it right. I use yeah, plot well. to kill the president. That's what we had back in 1963. 
and you can fit all the pieces of the puzzle together and get rid of the distortions of history uh, and, and just get down to what the actual truth was. And there you, you go. Think, um, Harvey Oswald might have been in the CIA. Well, I'll tell you, uh, Dorothy uh, concentrated, focused on Jack Ruby. And, and you can go to my uh, to the website, uh, markshawbooks.com, but also the Dorothy Kilgallen story.org. And you'll hear accounts of those Jack Ruby's lawyer and others who talk about the fact that she focused on Ruby. And the reason she did is that Lee Harvey Oswald is a confusing situation. He was supposed to be in North Vietnam at one point. He's supposed to be in Russia. He's supposed to be in Mexico. All of that. Dorothy didn't buy it, and I don't either. He was a convenient uh, person to have uh, been involved in, uh, in uh, uh, JFK's death, just as Sirhan Sirhan is a convenient patsy to in be involved in RFK's situation. Th that's how you do that, that you bring that red herring in there. And so basically you're, you're, you're pointed to those people, and that way you won't look deeply uh, into more of what is actually the truth. Wow. So there you have it, everybody. So Marilyn Monroe was killed by the Kennedys. The Kennedys were killed by a mobster called Marcello. And that's that's the real history. It's fascinating. Um, tell me, where, where do you want people to go and find you on Twitter and uh, or, or is it or just the book? So where would you like them to go? Well, your producer, Ash, knows that I'm a complete techno dope. So I don't have some of those social uh, media uh, situations out there, but you can find me at markshawbooks.com. That's the easiest place. My website is mshawin at yahoo.com, and I answer every single uh, email, even if you're uh, not very nice to me. I, I, will, I will talk to anybody about this. So I really appreciate you, your you having me it. on here, Andrew. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. I've got one more question I want to ask, though. Um, just what, what is it that got you so interested in, in JFK and the Marilyn Monroe stuff, apart from the fact that it is just very interesting in itself? Maybe with your, with your uh, research you've done, it's something that's small, you know, that becomes large. Uh, I knew Melvin Belli, the lawyer for Ruby in the 1980s, and so I practiced law with him. And then I looked into his, his life and times for a book called Melvin Belli, Court, King of the Courtroom. When I'm talking to a friend of Melvin Belli's, he said, you know, he knew Dorothy Kilgallen. And I didn't know anything about Kilgallen except for what's my life. And so I said, wait a minute, he was on that show? He said, no, she met Dorothy Kil he met Dorothy Kilgallen at the Ruby trial. And you know what, Mark, when she he said to me, they've killed Dorothy. Now they'll go after Jack Ruby. I could never get that quote out of my mind, and that has led to, what, five or six books now on this subject. So it's, it's when people, you know, people may say, why is this relevant today? It's because back then they didn't ask the right questions. You know, we had an incredible tragedy in this country yesterday with 19 children and a teacher being slaughtered in a school in Texas. And I guarantee you, uh, the right questions won't be asked about what that happened, and we'll go on slaughtering people in this country, which is just a disgrace. You have to write the, ask the right questions. People like you do that. Uh, people like, you know, uh, Sean do this and your other guests. You need to keep asking those questions, and then your listeners need to ask those questions. Because many times we just accept what's in the news. We shouldn't do that. And we're too afraid to go after the truth. 
that should never happen. And that's if this would have happened back in the in, in the early 1960s with all of these deaths, uh, you know, history would have been changed for sure and a lot for the better, in my opinion. You're spot on, Mark. This channel is a lot about seeking truth, getting the truth out, getting secrets out. So right. I agree with you totally. Thank you so much for coming on, Mark, and have a have a lovely day. Everybody go in and get Mark's books. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew. You're a good man. Thank you, Mark. So are you. Have a good day. Right, that was Mark. Um, I would just add, there's been a few comments, people talking about how many people are in here compared to the likes ratio. So do, if you get a second, give it a quick little like if you're on YouTube. If you're listening on the audio podcast, ignore what I am talking about. If you've just joined us, whether on the audio or the YouTube or the Facebook or the whatever you're on, because Sean's channel is dominating the world. Uh, Sean is not here today. He's not here for a couple of weeks, I don't believe, or I do believe that he's not here for a couple of weeks. Double negative there. But he is going around the country filming some of his HD quality camera made podcasts, uh, mostly from your suggestions. So thank him later, that wonderful, sexy beast that is Sean Atwood. Um, he'll probably be listening in though. So do keep on uh, commenting and chatting and liking on the, whatever you're doing because he'll, he'll be checking in and making sure that you are doing it. Right, now it is time for my next guest. It is the Dark Journalist. Hello, Dark Journalist. How are you doing? How are you, Andrew? I am well, thank you. Where are you talking to us from today? Uh, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, so right outside of Boston oh. here. Okay, I believe that's a part of America that's like the most similar to the UK in some respects. Absolutely. Everything around here is named after you guys. So we're even yeah. New England. Let's think about it. That's it. That's exactly it. I think I've heard it's very beautiful there as well. Tell me a little bit. So dark journalist, do you, do you give your real name out or, or do you stay anonymous because of the nature of your work? Uh, no, it's Daniel List. And uh, basically this kind of work, I think that if you know, if you have some chops as a journalist, you can move uh, through it all. But most of my stuff is under dark journalist. And, uh, you know, for me, that's just a kind of journalism. So if you want to get through to the truth, you're using dark journalism as opposed to kind of mainstream methods. Oh, so dark in, in, that, in that respect means alternative or maybe does it also mean using sort of devious means to collect information that, that otherwise would not be possible? To <laughs> I don't know about devious. Uh, that's interesting. I, uh, I would say, you know, you go to dark places in order to get the stuff. Yes, for sure. And uh, hmm. very often, I mean, my experience in general with the media is certain types of stories get up to a point and you think they're going somewhere. And then there's that choke point, chokes off the story, and everybody in the newsroom goes back to what they were doing. And so if a publisher doesn't want something, if a New York Times publisher says, kill it, that's it. We never hear about it. That's why the alternative media is so crucial, as you guys understand. Yeah. I mean, and is that a big concern? Do you find that the mainstream media is particularly uh, has moved to one side or the other politically in recent years? Oh, it's an incredible shift. I mean, it's dramatic. They've always been, you know, shaping the narrative. Uh, the CIA has been deeply involved with the media since its inception in 47. So they've always had that aspect. But once you got to the Trump election in 2016, they just threw everything out and just went, you know, hardcore. And uh, so they were so dedicated to get one narrative going. And that's kind of a 
inside political war that spread out to the media. And at this point, uh, the media is, you know, a lot of people, and I, I've discussed this with people who watch MSNBC and some of the real traditional stuff, because they really think they're getting the real thing. But, you know, those companies are controlled by pharmaceutical companies, uh, the war machine, you know, they're not going to give you the truth. They're not, you know, public access <laughs> yeah. uh, doing it voluntarily. So we have a wrong idea about the news. Those are paid players. Uh, one of the things that RFK Jr. told me when he came on my show was that certain individuals in the media, like Anderson Cooper, not only are they sponsored at, via CNN, they're sponsored individually by certain companies. So like Pfizer will sponsor Cooper as an individual. So when we get into that, uh, you're no longer able to critique and criticize these people, and that's no longer news. So my theory on that basically is if you're in the truth-telling business and you can't tell the truth, you get out of the business. And uh, that's really where I find ourselves uh, on this. And, of course, in relation to the JFK assassination, that's kind of the classic case for this. Mm. Well, I'm going to get onto that in a second, but I'm just thinking, so I guess you're suggesting it's it's moved very far left, particularly MSNBC and CNN, for example. I look at the UK and there's the BBC and Channel 4 have also moved quite far left or, or seem to at least have been taken over by this, the left or the woke side of the culture wars. But you also do have Fox News. Uh, in the UK, we have GB News, which is a sort of imitation in some ways of, of Fox News. So isn't it just a case of, you know, both sides are moving both ways? Yeah, I think they'll use either side for what they want to do, you know, so right now they might be really using the left side and dominating with that, you know, here uh, in America, the DNC and the media are exactly like that. There's just no difference between them. And Fox and, and those types of networks, although they're the conservative networks, there's still stories they won't touch. They don't want to talk about the Federal Reserve. <laughs> uh, and their hosts wear CIA pins. I mean, you know, so they're not going to get at real stories either. So that's kind of what's feeding the, the marketplace. Reserve? Yeah. What, what's, what is the Federal Reserve? Uh, the Federal Reserve, that's uh, the kind of main central bank in America that controls the, the money flow. And, uh, you know, it's been at the heart since 1913 of a number of scandals and problems uh, in this country and around the world. And they're the guys who just keep printing the money. <laughs> oh, right. You guys okay. have the Bank of England. We have the Federal Reserve. Yes. Interesting. Okay. And that's untouchable, whether left or right, because of the powers that be. Hey, did you hear much about, uh, did you get to hear any of what Mark Shaw was saying about JFK? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like Mark Shaw a lot. I, I think he does interesting work. And uh, there's a there's an aspect in his work that he doesn't even realize he's uncovered. Well, Dorothy Kilgallen and Marilyn being close uh, on that it's, it's been rumored for years that it was JFK who told Marilyn about UFO secrets. And those are the things that he said to Kilgallen. And everyone is so hung up on the, uh, you know, kind of Cuba-Soviet aspect or anti-Castro Cubans when they look back. Um, a lot of that stuff is a cover story. And, you know, the real central piece in the JFK assassination is actually the UFO aerospace file. And wow. uh, that's that's the piece that's been missed. Uh, in my own work, I had the Watergate lawyer, Douglas Caddy, come on the program. And he was the lawyer for the Watergate 7. And he was best friends with E. Howard Hunt, who was the top spy master in the JFK era. And before Hunt went off to prison for Watergate, in private, uh, he talked to Caddy. And, and, you know, Caddy said, what happened with the JFK thing? Why did the CIA assassinate President Kennedy? 
And he said, well, the CIA assassinated him because he had to be removed because he was about to give our most vital national security secret to the Russians. And he said, what, what do you mean? Why would he do that? What's the secret? And he said, the UFO file, the alien presence. Wow. So uh, that conversation is sitting there in history. Uh, and, you know, there's a major historical figure. So very often in the UFO field, you get these guys, I'm a whistleblower. I had an encounter. I saw something. This guy's a Watergate lawyer. Uh, so that's a lot different. So we have that historical heft of somebody saying that it was over the UFO file. When you dig back through that, you start to realize the UFO file is all around the JFK assassination. And like, you know, so when you get into like the mafia and the Cubans and things like that, I mean, Cubans uh, or the mafia can't change autopsy reports. You know, they, they can't uh, go into the government and have the, the ballistics changed. I mean, that's a totally different type of operation. So when we get into uh, people like the Cubans or the mafia, that's really, those are foot soldiers who are around the fringe. That has nothing to do with the actual case. And so that's the big kind of untouchable thing uh, when it comes to this. You see stories occasionally, there'll be little, you know, because memos come out that JFK wanted all the UFO files 10 days before his assassination. And those are memos that are on record. So that's kind of where we're at. The, the problem is, the UFO secrecy is overlapped on the JFK assassination. So those two are really untouchable. And I think the nature of the problem that we have right now with the UFO file research is, you know, you see these hearings in America, but they don't touch on anything real. This is CIA disclosure. It's like a parody disclosure uh, that they want to build a threat narrative, which, which is totally different from actual disclosure, which is the kind of thing that President Kennedy was looking for. That's 1963. That's 58 years ago. And they're still hiding his records. <laughs> so think about that. Why are you going to hide somebody's yeah. records 58 years later? Because of the UFO stuff. So yes. would you agree then, just to go almost off topic, but stay on topic, would you agree that maybe Marilyn Monroe was assassinated by the Kennedys, but then not agree that it was this Marcello gangster, Marcello, who, who killed Bobby Kennedy, that it was actually uh, the, the government to stop him spreading the UFO stuff? Um, the CIA assassinated both of the Kennedy brothers. Uh, so, you know, the CIA used the mafia. It came out in the 70s in the church committee uh, and in these Pike Commission and these different commissions that they did. They realized, oh, they used the mafia for hire. So you can always have mafia people around, but that's scenery, basically. I mean, the Central Intelligence Agency has assassination programs. Recently, before they grabbed Assange, uh, as you know, they wanted to assassinate him. And who did they send in for the job? The CIA. I mean, that's they're still doing it. And um, Kennedy, when he got into office, if you look at some of those early um, kind of briefings that he had, if you go back and you read what his aides were hearing from him, he was like, I can't believe the Central Intelligence Agency has the ability to go over to Laos, to go over to Vietnam and do these things on their own and that they have their own air force, you know. Uh, so he wanted to get that back under presidential control. But he also wanted the UFO file back under presidential control. And that's a really big problem for them. It still is. Why is it so important for the CIA to pre prevent the UFO files from getting out? What might happen if that falls into the wrong hands or if we were to find out the truth about it all? That's the real question. Uh, why are they hiding it? that hardcore. There's a good school of thought that says the National Security Act and the creation of the CIA was exactly because 
of the Roswell crash and exactly because of the early UFO incidents and the UFO wave that they created this thing where they could move all that information through these different government agencies. Um, certainly they have a lot to do with it, but it has something to do with the CIA on one side in the aerospace corridor, that defense contractor piece of Lockheed Martin and Boeing. So they've been involved for a long time as kind of a, a separate pseudo government going right alongside the regular government. So you have an overt government up here ruling things, the president, the Congress and all that. And then you have the covert government and the way that that thing operates without the media being able to get at it is the excessive levels of secrecy. And, you know, in many cases, I'll tell you, as people that I know in journalism, if you want to make it, you have to make friends with the CIA because they have people all over the world. So if you want a real story on foreign policy, if you don't make friends with the CIA, they can make or break your career. And so therefore, those people are never going to turn on them and be like, you know, unless you get like a Glenn Greenwald or somebody like that, who's very aware of the, the nature of the situation. But the the ironclad grip of the Central Intelligence Agency on the media uh, means you'll never get the truth on the UFO thing. And you certainly won't get the truth on the JFK assassination because they had decided this guy's too much of a threat. We need to remove him. And they don't they're not going to out themselves. <laughs> they still have his records 58 years later the records are mandated by congress now in 1992 and they were mandated to come out 25 years later that's 2017 and i was live streaming at the time because i thought the records are going to come out and they blocked them at the last minute october 26 2017 and the reason was oh it's a national security issue well, what could be a national security issue the soviet union doesn't even exist anymore so they're still hiding something in those records. And actually, there is something valuable in those records. A lot of people said, well, you know, what are you going to get in records anyway? And I understand that. But um, recently, someone over here who's very popular on these different shows named Judge Andrew Napolitano. He does major media shows. And he's like a libertarian, uh, you know, I mean, Fox has had him on, uh, you know, so he does all these kind of mainstream shows. But he talked about a conversation he had with Trump. When Trump didn't release all the files, which is a big thing because Trump was like, oh, I'm going to release all this. And he said, no, you know, Trump said to me in this conversation, I can't release that stuff. You don't understand. If you knew what was in there, you wouldn't release it either. So whatever it is in those JFK files is absolutely explosive. My guess, it's a link directly to the UFO file. Surely Trump would release because he'd love to release that stuff. I can imagine he'd get a real, you know, being the guy who released it all. And also, like, I guess where I get a bit skeptical, and, and, and I'm not skeptical about your, what you're saying, but just about the whole UFO thing, it's just that there's a huge world out there outside of the States where UFOs might have landed. I mean, this, we talk about the Soviets. I mean, that's a huge amount of land, isn't it? It'd be larger than the US, oh, yeah. I think. It's like the biggest country in the world or something, one of them. Um, it must have been, if, if UFOs were landing in the States, it's just as likely they would have been landing in Russia or in uh, the UK or El Salvador, for that matter, or Chile or wherever it might be. So are all these countries conspiring together to prevent people from knowing and how many people then are in on this secret surely it would have been outed by now um well for example in the soviet union you had the voronezh case just before they broke up uh the soviet union that's 89 and uh in in that case that's a major report through media nightline had it on uh 
And that's a case of two ships landing in a park and 300 witnesses, including children, uh, seeing it and them calling out the police to try to get the aliens, <laughs> you know, and take them to, to jail. I mean, that's pretty major. So those stories have been there. The question is, what's the incentive, for example, uh, for somebody to call this out? So if I'm China, why should I call out what I have on the UFO file when the United States keeps it a super secret? Or if I'm Russia, why am I going to reveal the technology that I've recovered? I might, you know, in the case of Russia, I'd say they're neck and neck with us, if not superior on UFO recovery. So I don't think there's any incentive for them to say anything. The other thing is that the Central Intelligence Agency has made it their central tenet of secrecy co-intelligence is lying to the public in order to get them to believe something else. That's what you do with your enemies overseas. You know, that's been going on since World War II and Hitler. We didn't want him to think we were going to land in Normandy. So we kept giving him this false story. We were landing somewhere else. And that's the nature of co-intelligence, um, counterintelligence. So when you get to that point, that's what they're good at. So the Central Intelligence Agency are professional liars. So whenever you get around the UFO file, you know, they can dance on either side of that line. Right now they're saying, oh, there's something in our space that's a threat. We need more money to study it. Uh, yeah. But hit, five I'm years ago... Oh, I was just going to say the Yeah, I was just going to say one of their earliest... Oh, go oh, go ahead. One of their <laughs> earliest <crazy>. tweets. <laughs> that's called intercontinental uh, delay. <laughs> uh, one of their earliest tweets was, remember all those sh uh, UFOs you were seeing in the skies in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? That was us. Yeah. We did it. Right. So then back then they were saying five years ago that they had done the whole UFO wave. It was them and there are no aliens. Now their thing is, oh, there's a threat out there. You know, we stole 30 trillion dollars of your money and we were fighting aliens. So just forget about it. <laughs> mm. The thing you I was going to say, the thing you're saying about Hitler and the government lying to us because they're professionals in secrets and co-conspiratorial stuff. Um, that's really interesting because it, it plays on something we talked about last week on this show because we had somebody on who was a former spy, Andrew Bustamante, who was saying that it's not necessarily a bad thing that the government do these kinds of secret things and that the public aren't allowed to know about them and that we're not privy to these secrets because, um, you know, look at the good that came from that particular um, tactic against the Germans, so against the Nazis, I should say. So is it sometimes right and I know that's not a popular thing to say on this channel, but I'm just thinking out loud. Is it sometimes right that the government keep secrets from us? Well, it's the extent of the secrecy and what it's for. And not if it's operating as an independent government of its own, which is beyond the reach of the average citizen. Uh, that's different. So, And also, in the case of counterintelligence, that's supposed to be not against your own citizens. That's against other countries you know, to keep them in the dark about the things that you're doing. So to use that on the American public is actually a, a major betrayal because they're set up to be part of the defense of the United States. The interesting thing is also that the Central Intelligence Agency, this is not often talked about, they're an extra constitutional agency. So in fact, their entire existence is illegal. <laughs> so is the Department of Homeland Security. Department of Homeland Security has a quarter of a million employees. The CIA has their own Air Force, but technically they shouldn't exist. Because uh, in the Constitution, you're set up for the defense of the United States and you set up a military to do that. So having an independent branch, uh, you know, this is when Truman set up the Central Intelligence Agency. After the Kennedy assassination, he said, look, you know, either 
mend it or end it, reform that agency or get rid of it. It was never meant to go over and be overthrowing governments and blowing up trains and fixing elections. So the Central Intelligence Agency is a core problem. It's a growing problem. They're in the media. They're in this UFO uh, threat piece. The, you know, the whole thing with Assange and assassination, look at what they've done in Ukraine. In Ukraine, a few people inside the Central Intelligence Agency could get you into a nuclear war. So again, it all depends. You know, there has to be oversight in relation to these things. Of course, there's a certain amount of secrecy in relation to nukes and other things that are expected from the public. But when you get to this level, um, you know, then it's a totally different story. What about the secret space program? Well, this is crucial because it, this is very easy. Think about this. In 1972 was the last time we went to the moon, a manned mission. Now, we're 50 years later. Why haven't they gone back with a manned mission to the moon? This is the first question you ask. And what happened in between? So we had shuttles, unmanned probes, and all the rest of it. But what happened to the manned space program? Well, it's interesting because uh, there's a guy in the UK who the United States wanted to get very badly named Gary McKinnon. And he had hacked into NASA. And uh, he basically wanted information on UFOs and thought, maybe I can get in here. And he found that he could. And you remember this guy? You're familiar with the story? Yes, that's right. Yes, go on. Very interesting guy. Well, Sorry, was Uh, he maybe just autistic or something? I don't mean to say the wrong thing. Right. Yeah. They they did, and uh, it's Asperger's is what they said that he had, which is why they weren't able to extradite him. But you'll find that he comes up uh, in a press conference when Obama went over to the UK with Cameron. And so they discussed the matter of extraditing Gary McKinnon for hacking into NASA. Well, what did Gary McKinnon say when he went looking for UFOs at NASA? It's pretty interesting. What he found were off-world officer lists lists of an entire different military that dealt with off-world things. So they've been building, the suggestion is the secret space program, they've been building a force over the course of that 50 years. And that's why you've had money disappearing out of the back of the government, what they call the missing trillions or the missing money. Um, That's building a major uh, infrastructure in space and it's all been done in secret. And now who's ready to cash in on that stuff? Uh, that's where you get Bezos, that's where you get Elon Musk, and those guys, you know, are rolling right into a pre-made space infrastructure. That's a space program that's been built over 50 years with our money. So uh, we haven't had any access to that. And where, where are all the missions from 1972 to 2022? They don't exist. I suppose a skeptic then might say if somebody like Trump or somebody like Elon Musk, along with many, many other people, knew about this secret space program, they would it would be out there in a second. Musk can't can't keep quiet for a minute, can he, before tweeting everything out? Well, he can't do anything out in space without the permission of the government. Nothing. Literally. Mm. If they're against him, he can't do anything. If the Central Intelligence Agency thought Musk were any kind of threat to their secrecy, He would have been washed up in a sex scandal five years ago. That would have been it. So, no, when you get on that level, uh, you get briefed in that this is a national security area. So what they've done with space, and it's interesting with Trump, because you can see how they try to move the UFO file back under the purview from intelligence to the executive branch. And the Space Force was his attempt. Well, if I have a branch that's actually dedicated to space, then I'll be able to collect all the UFO info 
and bring that under the umbrella of the executive branch. They lost that ability. If you track the story back Eisenhower into JFK, that was the fight over the UFO file or what I call the war over the UFO file that took place then. We're still looking at that in those congressional hearings now. But fundamentally what happened is they decided, you know what? We're going to move this out of the government into corporations like Lockheed and Boeing. And then when people do FOIA requests or investigations, they won't be able to touch it because it's not part of the government. So eventually that group with the CIA were just like, we have the technology, we have the research, you guys have a good time. <laughs> and uh, ever since, I mean, you have attempts, even Reagan with Star Wars, there's an attempt to get that uh, back. So you have to look at the history in a way that's understandable. When you think about Trump and his gruff demeanor and wanting to get this stuff out, he said a few things, really, that indicated um, he wanted to go deep on the UFO file. But he can't, just like any of these guys, can't come out and say, yes, <laughs> you know, we have the wreckage and we have this stuff because they're busy trying to get that back from this shadowy corridor of defense contractors between the Central Intelligence Agency and uh, the aerospace companies. That's the corridor that's not, no one gets at that. You know, even when we talk about the JFK thing, it's loaded with that. Oswald, uh, one of the things he claimed to his fellow employees, he was going to work for NASA. You never hear about that. You always hear about Oswald, oh, the Cubans or whatever. <laughs> uh, no, he, he was around NASA. When he, he worked for Guy Bannister, who was a right winger. So that's wow. weird too. I mean, he's supposed to be a left-wing communist. Yeah. And But Bannister, if you go further enough back in his own career, he started the X-Files at the FBI. He did, you can find little newspaper reports of him checking out uh, UFO reports and saucer reports, you know, in newspapers. So hmm. Guy Bannister then becomes Oswald's employee. So everywhere you go around the JFK thing, the UFO file is in your face. And that's yeah. the secret piece with the assassination. That's the reason they don't let the records out. That's interesting. So I guess what we're learning here is that UFO stuff is actually supersedes the Cuban stuff in terms of uh, a sort of hierarchy of secrets. And I mean, it's an exciting thought, isn't it? The, the secret space program, isn't that a really exciting thought? I would love, because I get the idea, I guess what that makes me feel, and maybe it's what makes the viewers feel, uh, it, one day that you'll open the newspaper and there'll be loads about, yeah, all right, we admit it, we've got this big base out on like planet whatever, a few light years <laughs> away and there are, there are aliens and stuff like that. I mean, what's the most exciting thing you think of when you think of the secret space program? Um, well, it's, it's incredibly suppressed. All right. So the things that they've found in relation to, uh, you know, there's a lot of reports that on the moon they found ruins. Hmm. So that's a problem right away. What do you do if in the late 60s you find ruins on the moon? <laughs> yeah. uh, and you have a whole culture that's set up to think, oh, culture started in Samaria in 6000 BC. I mean, it is, you know. It's a pretty big conundrum. They actually did a study on it for the Brookings Institute in the 60s. And they said, what would be the impact of ET life, the discovery of ET life? And uh, they decided it would upend religious institutions, destroy the economy, etc. So they've always been very careful when they've done studies along this line. But um, I think that they know a lot more about space. They have a lot more. Let's go back to McKinnon for a minute. If his off-world officers lists... If that's why they wanted him so badly. So what does that suggest? It not only suggests 
you're sending probes out that are getting all this information. You've got a whole group of people who are 50 years ahead in terms of their space understanding. They've been out there. They've adjusted. Um, you know, they were talking about, oh, we're going to send the first woman into space. Do you really think <laughs> that they haven't sent a woman into space? I mean, you know, with the exception of the Soviets, uh, you know, the Americans definitely have already done this. And mm. it is interesting. If you look at the timeline, when Trump was in, they had Pence saying, we're going back to the moon in 2024. And then as soon as Biden gets in, it's no, no, it's not 2024, maybe 2028 or 2030. So they moved all of that around. So you can see these two groups grappling, trying to get a handle on the situation. But really, fundamentally, you look at it and you say, they stopped going to the moon. They were well-funded. They'd already funded trips uh, further out to the moon past 72. So under Nixon was the last manned mission. So what do you do with 50 years in between? That's where the secret uh, space program is. Fascinating, really fascinating. And we're running out of time. Uh, do tell us where where do you want people to go and find you and give you some love? <laughs> uh, darkjournalist.com and uh, Dark Journalist on YouTube. And uh, the documentary up there is X Protect UFO File Aerospace Assassinations. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so yeah, much for coming you. on. Oh, yeah. it was brilliant. Yeah. And you have a lovely day. Have a good one, Andrew. I've cut you, cut you off. But thank you very, very much. That was great. Really, really interesting. What an exciting idea of these far-flung universes and UFOs and things that are being kept, kept secret from us. All the bloody secrets. Um, I'm going to go off in a minute. Just to remind you, if you've just joined us, Sean is away doing podcast stuff. He's filming all these podcasts for our own delight and for our own uh, use and enjoyment. It's going to be really, really good. Um, I'm going to, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll be joining you again on Patreon in an hour i you know go come and have a look at my little podcast on the edge with andrew gold lots of similar stuff to what's on here it's on the audio podcast spotify and apple and all that stuff and it's on youtube as well come subscribe tell me that uh sean just brought you here even though it was me bringing you here from sean's channel i'm gonna bring on mr stephen knight just now I believe he is ready. Yep, you just put your clothes back on again. There you are. How are you doing? Half, half of the clothes. Um, I'm only half committed to the clothes thing. <laughs> yeah, the top half's back on, but that's all that matters on this. Actually, the, the important half. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys could see a stream of the lower parts of our bodies, you would never want to see this channel again. I think that might so. constitute a hate crime. <laughs> so uh, again just just again in case you're just joining us Stephen Knight is from the Godless Spellchecker podcast it's also on YouTube as the Knight Tube he's the best there is are you the best there is? you're the best there is aren't you I think that's factual <laughs> it's factual and what I'm going <laughs> to we'll do... find out we we'll really will find out won't we <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to bring on in uh, well, he's just taking his headphones off so I might not just yet I was going to bring on MK Davis to to speak with you but um I don't know if he's he's got his little headphones off now in the back in the green room, so I won't do it quite yet. Um, aliens and stuff, Stephen. Exciting stuff to think about? Well, I'm kind of in two camps on this one because I spent a lot of my teenage years embedded in this sort of stuff. I found it fascinating, you know, campfire fodder, heavy into my X-Files. Uh, I like how it sort of inspires the imagination. Then, obviously, adulthood happened and I became a massive cynical sceptic that doesn't believe anything <laughs> I'm not even sure we're here right yeah. now, to be fair. We're so we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe I'll be turned around by our guests. It would be. All I know about aliens is it would be really, really exciting. 
if it were all true. Mm. Um, everybody, do do click on like on the thing because I think it makes the video get more viral and stuff, and it makes Uncle Sean, uh, Grandpa Sean Atwood, <laughs> Uncle Sean, Uncle Sean, I'll go with Uncle to not offend him. <laughs> Sean Atwood, very happy. Click on the like and stuff. I'll see you on the Patreon later. I'll leave Stephen to talk to MK Davis, who I, I think he's still fiddling with his headphones, but I'm just going to just bring him on and see what happens. Hello. Hello. Right, I'm going to leave you with Stephen now. Stephen, you can introduce MK and all that stuff and um, see you all in a bit. Thank you, sir. So for our next guest, this show will be revisiting the Bigfoot uh, phenomenon. Uh, MK Davis is joining us, as you can see on your screen now. Uh, he's well known by Bigfoot researchers for his analysis of the famous Patterson-Gimlin now, the Patterson-Gimlin film is an American short motion picture of an unidentified subject that the filmmakers have said was a Bigfoot. Uh, the footage was shot in 1967 in Northern California and has since been subjected to many attempts to authenticate it and debunk it. It's become somewhat iconic, that film. I think you'd instantly recognise it. I believe it's been homaged in sort of uh, movies like Zack Snyder's Just uh, Watchmen, even. Uh, maybe M. Night Shyamalan's uh, Signs. Uh, so, M.K. Davis, how are you, sir? Well, I'm doing just fine. Can you hear me good? I can hear you loud and clear, sir. So I believe you've dedicated a, a large chunk of your life to researching and tracking down the, uh, the, the mythical creature known as Bigfoot. Is that correct? Well, I, you know, for a long time, I denied any of that. Uh, I kind of backed into the Bigfoot field. I was into astrophotography. Uh, I was taking space pictures, you know, through a telescope. How and that was kind of my thing. from that to Bigfoot? Where's the, where's the leap there? What happened? Well, it, it kind of happened uh, kind of by accident. Um, you know, uh, back in the mid-90s when the Internet became kind of uh, the thing, uh, they, they leaked out two really good frames from the Patterson Bigfoot film. Uh, and they were so far and above what you normally saw, you know, the dark, grainy, shaky versions of the film that I, I knew enough about photography through my pursuit in astrophotography that, that you, you can't get images like that from a, from a bad film, that there had to be a really good version of that film somewhere that they came off of. So I began an inquiry just to curiosity. Uh, and the inquiry continues to this day, but I, I've amassed uh, probably some of the best images from that film anywhere. Uh, so, so, you know, it's, a it's been uh, a 25 year plus year journey of, uh, of in, in, inquiring, you know, uh, trying to get the best frames from it. And I figured, I felt like that, that if I got those, all those real good images, that the film would tell its own story and that you would not need uh, anyone to vouch for it or anything like that. And I think that it largely has. Well, what, in your opinion, does that film show in any objective manner well it's it shows um uh, an upright walking individual that is quite apparently female 
and it shows it in broad daylight uh, with the with a, a good sun angle on it, and it's so, taken with. Go ahead. Sorry, just to pick up on that point because many of the viewers and listeners would always uh, associate you know masculinity with the urban legend of Bigfoot. But now you're saying uh, it presents as, as female. Now is this? some sort of uh, gait, some sort of hip-to-waist ratio? What kind of things are you looking at to make that determination? Mm -hmm. No, the mammary glands. Right. It's, it's got very, very obvious mammary glands. Uh, you, get, you look at those really high-quality images from the film, and, and you not only can see them, but you can see them move and swing pendulously. Uh, so, you know, it, it's not much dispute about whether it's male or female. Okay. So, I mean, I did not think I'd be talking about Bigfoot today. It's this wonderful piece of Americana to me, the kind of thing you'd sit around a campfire and talk about. But as I've become a bit older, it sort of went in the same basket as sort of the Loch Ness Monster. Fa fairies at the bottom of the garden, uh, mermaids, things like that. You know, great stories to tell, something that could fire up the imagination of people. Uh, but you are committed to this idea that Bigfoot is not only real, uh, but it's something you may actually prove uh, as real one day uh, without any question. Well, to be honest with you, the film should have sufficed for that. Uh, up until up until I came along and, and, and began my inquiry into the better images of the film, all anyone ever saw of it was like a third or fourth generation copy that was uh, just, uh, you know, when you copy something that's a positive, when you copy positive to positive, you build contrast. So you end up with this almost a silhouette for the, for the film subject. And then uh, the, the, the sandbar becomes totally white. Uh, and and everything is just, you know, just uh extreme uh, and so uh it, it's not surprising to me that that's what that's what people remembered about the film and when they when they you see some of the better stuff that's on some of my my uh, web pages uh it's a whole different film that's that's interesting and I, I respect the idea of seeing is believing to an extent and you'd certainly want to take videos and use that as evidence of, of certain phenomena but, but in the video we seem to see a very sort of um grainy bipedal figure moving as you've identified as female and i know you've done a lot of work to make that clearer but how have we ruled out the possibility of a human being in a suit or, or some sort of hoax the possibility uh whether there's always a possibility how about the probability the probability is pretty low. Uh, it, it would be very hard to difficult to uh, uh, assemble a, uh, a suit that would mimic the the breast movement. You know, they they if you time the breast movement with the steps, they they lag behind about maybe a half a second, and then they follow. And when they follow, it's it's. It's very obvious that they are at least the density of water. Um, back in 1967, the best they had was probably Planet of the Apes. And uh, so, you know, it's this is too far and above uh, 
you know, you see, you can, on the back, you can see the muscles moving. You can see the scapula under the skin move back and forth, just like that. Um, that those are things that you recognize in your daily life when you see biomechanically observe another human being. You see the muscles move. You see the, uh, and, and it's not nearly as hairy as, as people once thought. Once you get those good images, you see that it's, it's just hair, lightly haired over. Uh, it's got some patches that are heavier, some patches that are nothing but skin. Uh, it's, it's, it's just very surprising how much better the original film was. So by your estimation, then, how, how, where does this creature fall? I mean, it sounds like it has a lot of typical ape traits that you've mentioned in terms of the, you know, evolution and, uh, you know, common ancestry. Where would you say it falls in? In, in my estimation, in, in course, you know, there's no one person has all the expertise, you know, uh, but from what I've been able to gather from my years of working on the film and and uh, that it's it's some kind of early human. That's still alive in that rugged country, uh, what they call a hominin. Um, hominin ending with the letter N means that it does not include Homo sapiens. Sapien. Uh, it's it's uh, it's where they find the skulls here and there, you know, around the world, uh, in different types. You know, Homo erectus, Australopithecus, uh, Peking man. You know, uh, they're all different types of hominids. They're not us. She's uh, she's massive. She probably weighs a thousand pounds. So that's that's a very big mammal, presumably. Why why are we not finding remains of these creatures all the time in in the areas of their sightings? Well, they do. They do find them. They just don't know what they have. Uh, they they found one, a skull. Some Boy Scouts were up in those same areas uh, in California, and they had a mule, pack mule, go through a, a mud hole, and it kicked up a skull with its hoofs. And it was very much like what you see on that film. You know, with the brow ridges and the slope back forehead and all of that big, massive jaw. Uh, they sent it off to a to a, one of the universities, I think, a University of California. And now they don't know where it is. You know, but they have pictures of it. The people who who uh, found it took pictures. So, you know, so you see that kind of a repeated over and over. When people find something that's something that's that they can't really figure out, they they're a little afraid of it. Uh, they found a skull in a sink in outside of uh, Lovelock, Nevada, uh, during a dig, during an archaeological dig, and it was so outstandingly different that they one one university passed it off to another university. The California gave it to Utah. Utah did a study on it. They commissioned a study, 
you know, they fill the cranium with bird seeds and measure the volume and all of that. And they, they said this was something really unusual and odd. They, uh, they ended up not publishing the study. And uh, Scribd, a company, came by. Uh, this was in recent years. And they, they had, what they would do is get old unpublished works and then they would publish them and charge money, you know, if you wanted them. And they charge a fee. And they published it. And I saw it. And I, I copied every bit of it, all, the, all the, the, the images of it, all the data. And then uh, I published the fact that it was out there. Uh, and uh, their, their article was, an unusual skull found near Lovelock, Nevada. And, you know, they took that thing down pronto. I mean, they, they took it down. Why, why would they take, why would they take that down in your view? Oh, I, I don't know. I think they're afraid of it. Uh, I think they're afraid that it kind of shifts paradigms a little bit. Wouldn't they, wouldn't uh, they get awards though for, for proving the existence of a new species? Surely that's something science uh, and peer review would, would celebrate. That's a Nobel, Nobel Prize, surely. Well, you and I would. But uh, when it comes to, to people who have already published works and, and their works have made it into the lexicons of, well, the, in, into, into textbooks, uh, they are, they're afraid of it. They're afraid of this. It's so different that the, there was this lady down in Mexico. Uh, uh, I forgot her, Julia Steen McIntyre, I believe it was. She found uh, artifacts down there that they, they had positively identified as 240,000 years old. And they ran her out of the business. I mean, they, 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 they went and, and backfilled the site in and they won't allow anyone else to dig there. Uh, the, the Kennewick man, they found, uh, they said he was what 10,000 years old and he, furthermore, he wasn't native American. He was some other race. They found him in the Columbia river and the government went in there and poured riprap onto where the, the site, they found him underwater along the edge of the river and they completely filled it in with concrete and riprap where no one else could go in there and dig or look. And okay. uh, they will not, they won't let anyone else look at the Kennewick man. You who, can go up there and request it all day long and they won't let you look. Who's, who's they? Uh, that's the people up in uh, Washington. I think it's Washington university up there. They have it. So, I mean, uh, I suppose, is your feeling that there's a concerted effort to suppress a truth they know to be genuine, or uh, are they concerned I, I about do, the I do think that. Yeah. I don't think it's without cause. Uh, you know, they've, they've demonstrated, and I say they, it, it, different people may occupy that, that term. Um, they just, it's, it's uh, when it comes to the human race, that our academics are very sensitive about it. Uh, they, 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 they kind of feel comfortable with the way things are now, showing a stair step, 
evolution from primitive to more advanced. And, and when they find something that's outside those norms, they, they have a hard time with it. Uh, and and if, if you've ever asked anyone who's been in that field, uh, you can have some real problems uh, when you're with your career. Uh, as, as it was in my case, I wasn't in that field. So, uh, you know, I, I just uh, was an interested person. The film, the Patterson film, uh, is probably about a 99% chance of being authentic. I would, I would. Um, so yeah, that's that's fascinating to me because obviously we have a film, and I would, I would agree. I suppose it seems to me it's very easy to agree it's authentic in the sense that it captures something. I suppose it's a whole new level in terms of probability when you try and invoke sort of new species. I mean, is your feeling that this species is still alive? Could it have died out in the sixties? Do we have anything other than this film to sort of uh, produce any sort of light on the matter? I've been there probably 20 times to that film site. I've been up and down the ridges on either side of it. Um, back in 1968, not 68, uh, 2008, I'm sorry. Um, a, a couple of friends of mine, we went up, up onto the mountain behind the film site and we walked way up there and I came down ahead of them. Uh, they were having foot problems and they had taken their boots off and were cleaning their feet. And I came on down, I crossed the Creek at the bottom and came down the other side and it came back out into the Creek. And I just waited there. I was going to film them when they came down and I filmed downstream and I filmed upstream and I had no idea that I had anything on my video. Uh, it was seven years later that I found it. Uh, it was an individual crouched down beside the stream with a piece of cloth in his hands, uh, like a something that the firefighters had dropped. You know, they have frequent fires in there. Right. And it, it was... Uh, for all, you know, it was a Bigfoot. I mean, there's no clothes on it. It was all mono covered in hair, but it was in dark shade. And I was looking through my viewfinder, you know, the little small at that time. Uh, so I didn't even see it. But when I was reviewing the tape for another reason, I saw the, the white cloth move and i say white it could have been just light colored but it it moved and i stopped and back it up and did a frame by frame and this was within maybe a quarter mile of the patterson film site how is it that a creature so large um and has such a huge presence and actively has people such as yourself trying to trying to locate it seek it out how is it able to evade close encounters with, with human beings what, i mean does it does it live underground in your view would it live in the trees would they make some sort of construct some sort of abode how would it work if you if you got the really good frames to look at 
uh, in the early part of the filming of the Patterson film, he's cr he crosses the creek and he he's behind an embankment kind of looking up at her. And he's just, he's literally shining and putting the camera. Uh, excuse me. It's okay. Directly on uh, her rear end. And you can see that she has worn all the hair off her rear end uh, on the inside of the cheeks. So I, I know from that that she has spent a good deal of time sitting down. Uh, <clears throat> Could it not just that, be where they step into the costume? Possibly so, but they must have, they would have had to spend a lot of time in the costume to, to do that. The sure. um, it, if you could see I, I'm not at home so I, I would show you otherwise uh, if you if you do a little research into that area it's the area between there and Mount Shasta is riddled with lava tubes so it, it kind of points toward a life underground predominantly you know, with with uh, forays, you know, out into the open, but uh, mostly underground, uh, under overhangs, and uh, in in lava tubes, things like that. And that's what I believe. I believe that they're largely that way. Is there some sort of intelligence then or awareness of the outside world, do you think? Because we, we do live in a, a sort of culture and society now where anything that seems to happen at any point ever is captured on some sort of CCTV camera, some sort of satellite imagery. It seems like there is nowhere anything can be hidden given the, the technological advances and, uh, you know, disregard for general privacy human beings have. How is it that these creatures, I mean, have managed to evade all that since the 60s in any sort of clear way, do you think? Well, uh, if you if you ever used your own home camera or your phone, for that matter, whenever you zoom, your field of view closes in. And so if you can imagine zooming in on a specific target with a satellite, your field of view drops to almost nothing. If you don't know exactly where it is, if you don't have pinpoint coordinates, you're, you're, you can be all around it and not ever see it. Uh, it's, it's, it seems like it would be an easy thing to do. And you hear people talk about, well, they can read a car tag or, or they can uh, see what you're eating for lunch out on your picnic table. Uh, that's true if they knew exactly where your picnic table was. But if they, if they had to come in and say, find the picnic table in this town, in this state, and tell me what they're having for lunch today, they couldn't do it. They couldn't locate it. So in a sense, I, I really admire your dedication to this. 20 years, you obviously took a deep dive into it. I suppose my question would be for you is what would be the moment or what could be the moment where you would decide, actually, I don't think this is worth dedicating my time to. Is there something that you could find or something that could happen that would make you change your mind about the existence of this creature? Well, you know, a lot, a lot of people have, you know, down through the years, I have, I've had uh, lots of, of really 
convincing skeptics approached me about that very same thing. And, uh, and I can only say that if someone else would have to come forward with, with irrefutably, there've been people who came forward. There's been nine different people claiming to be the man in the suit in the Patterson film. Right. You know, they're not all in there, obviously, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's, it's kind of crazy, but, uh, as long as that film was shaky and was grainy and dark, people could claim anything they wanted to claim about it. But when you see the original images, you have—it's a huge stretch. It's easier to believe it's real. Uh, you how, see too many things going on. How how would you feel if somebody beat you to the chase? Uh, and actually confirmed Bigfoot, would that be something you'd celebrate? Would it be something you'd be quite resentful about? How would you feel? I would absolutely celebrate it. It, it does not have to be me uh, by <laughs> any means. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, when you're talking about celebrating it, uh, it's probably just going to uh, open up another can of worms. You know, once you get past that point, you got to get past the point. Does it exist to, to move on to what is it? And uh, it's, it's kind of a stair step type of process, but uh, whatever people are doing to try to get to that point, I always appreciate and I will help anybody I can. I will throw data at them. I will provide them with images. I will tell them where to, where I've been, uh, to see and you know if we can move this thing forward somewhat um and and try to get academia to look at it again they're looking at ufos and they need to take a look at this also same well, the last thing they'll ask you is i mean it's a very i mean it seems to me living across the pond very esoteric and you know sort of specialized interest how do people respond when you tell them this is what you're dedicating your time to do you find people are are very open and interesting can you find people can be slightly mocking and dismissive what's the typical attitude yeah for the most part people are interested uh there's been you know i've i've been friends with some of the hardcore skeptics uh that people that actually make their living you know being a skeptic uh, benjamin bradford he's a uh, rights for skeptical inquirer uh he, he doesn't believe the patterson film and we're still friends, you know, it's, it's not, it's not anything that's going to, uh, I believe in, in human beings first, you know, and, and the Bigfoot can come or go, uh, if it's real, it will come eventually. Uh, that film, the Patterson took was an outstanding piece of footage. It is why Bigfoot even is considered now. Uh, that film, that that one piece of evidence, without it, it would be a, a very, very uh, scant uh, uh, evidence field. That's fascinating. So I suppose the last thing I'll ask you then, if, if you want to point people towards the most compelling artifacts for the existence of Bigfoot, where would you point people towards? Where, where can people find more of your output on the issue? Well, there's there's several several... Foot, uh, pieces of footage that I consider to be, you know, just a, 
right behind the Patterson film. One of them is the Paul Freeman footage that was taken in Walla Walla, Washington, uh, back in the mid nineties, uh, pretty close range. Uh, it's real good stuff. Uh, and, and there's a, a whole, uh, series of videos that came out of East Texas, uh, back in the early 2000s uh there were people were researching in there and had habituated or or conditioned some bigfoot uh to to come out and so it was uh very very good stuff there but if you want to see uh some good stuff on the patterson film and other things go to my uh my uh web blog and it's uh the davis report dot wordpress.com and just just explore that i put some of the best stuff up there all right mr david well this has been fascinating i uh i wish you all the best i, I really find your uh, positive positive attitude towards it quite infectious uh and you know whether you believe or not there, there is a certain element of, of fun to it for sure so thank you very much well for yeah it, it is it is, it is, it's not just fun, but it's uh, anticipation. You know, you're kind of looking for something uh, really good to happen, you know, so you're not, you're not without an expectation or of a, some kind of reward for your efforts. You know, it, it could happen. That's wonderful. Thank you very much and, and have a pleasant afternoon. Thank you. Take care. Hello. I am live and recording. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming over to Patreon and joining us. That was a really good couple of hours. It was great seeing Stephen Knight making his debut as a co-host. That was really nice working alongside him. He's a pro. He's funny. He's good. He knows the right questions to ask. Sean is away, as many of you know. He's doing all sorts. He's filming a podcast stuff uh hd camera it's going to be really nice uh all the stuff that you guys um have suggested so there you go um alex one of our guests has been writing he thought it was on youtube it does go on youtube do not worry it's going to get lots of people um itchy sort of nose that if i don't draw attention to it, it looks like i'm sort of picking my nose but it was an itch i assure you um it will go on youtube lots of people will watch it and it will be worth your while, while worth your while it's a weird phrase isn't it it's only when you're doing these things live and you know lots of people are listening you start to really uh inspect what you're saying and worth your while what is a while in that sense who knows we've got some great guests coming up about to introduce elana danan in fact i'm gonna have a look for her in the thing and add her and okay so she should be coming up soon coming up coming up it's there that's a good song uh and afterwards hopefully alex stein will be joining us to talk about some anti-woke humor oh elena is there elena how are you doing hey how are you <laughs> i'm good. fine and you <laughs> where, where are you from i'm from france and i live in ireland uh okay that's cool that's big mix there that's pretty cool i i used to live in france i always show off to everyone about my language skills uh je peux te parler en français si tu veux mais ça fait beaucoup de temps que je j'ai pas parlé un mot de français donc j'ai oublié tout très bien <laughs> merci mais uh, personne peut nous comprendre so we should speak in english but i've shown off just enough um how's ireland where are you in ireland 
I'm on the West Coast. Uh, oh, west, lovely. west, west, and uh, wild, wet west of Ireland. Oh, oh. I bet it's beautiful, though. <laughs> it's magnificent. It's magnificent. Oh. Well, tell me, where's what's your background and life up to about the age of nine years old? Where did you grow up in France as well? Well, I was born in Marseille, south of France, mm -hmm. and uh, yes, dans le midi, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I grew up there until the age of 18, and I went to Paris to study archaeology, so oh. I became an archaeologist afterwards, and I had many adventures. Oh, very cool. I used to live in Montpellier, uh, not far from Marseille. Beautiful. Yeah, I loved it. I was there like two years and then I got a job in book publishing in Bordeaux, which was also beautiful. Mm. So so there you go. So you're on the show tonight to talk about something quite extraordinary, which is your alien abduction and what you yeah. remember about it. So, yeah, g give us an insight into what happened. Well, um, at the age of nine, I was uh, abducted in the night by grey aliens. To be fair, the night before, um, with other witnesses, we, we saw a UFO hovering above the, above the house and there were many other witnesses as well. And it was in the papers as well, um, flying saucer, typical flying saucer shape, uh, glowing yeah. orange. And uh, it just zigzagged very, very quickly in the sky then. And in the same night, I was abducted in my bedroom by small gray aliens and... Um, I went through some miseries on board this craft and I was rescued by um, another group of aliens who are oh uh, fighting them. Yeah, and uh, that saved my life. Well, it, it saved me. Um, they weren't, the grey aliens weren't going to kill me. They were going to start a process of, you know, many abductions. So um, the 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 nice aliens um, rescued me, stopped that, yeah. Um, was this in the countryside outside of Marseille? Full in town, in town. What? Yes. That's unusual, you... isn't it? Well, not really in the south of France because there's a mm. lot of sightings uh, of UFOs in the south of France and in particular in this area, Provence. Marseille and countryside in the north. Um, I suppose there's maybe something, you know, never know in the sea or I don't know. I don't know. Um, mm. Yeah, it, it's yeah. it's not that unusual there. Oh, it's a very yeah. beautiful part of the world. They have these things called calanques, right? The, the yeah. calanques, the it's little beautiful. beachy island places. So maybe the aliens like the <laughs> countryside, the, the beauty <laughs> of it and everything. Um, so what can you remember of this night when you were taken? Well, what I remembered was um, seeing the UFO with my granny, my sister, and then going to bed and waking up in the morning, my my bed um, soaked with blood, uh, and um, I had to be hospitalized and had markings on my my in my wrists and all the classical things. Stayed two months in hospital, and um, and I was always terrorized by um, the, the picture of gray aliens. You know, I did the hypnosis recently in two thousand twenty. December 2020, and I, I got the memory back of this famous night. So what happened is that um, they beamed into my bedroom by a blue beam of light. They took me with them. 
and uh, I, I make it short. Um, I was taking make it long. more. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we have. We have. How long do we have? We have another twenty-five minutes. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know what your audience is and how will uh, people um, react to this, but you know. That's my life and everyone is entitled to their own opinion. I'm a scientist, I'm an archaeologist, so I understand very well, very well that people won't believe in this and it's okay. So I am um, the beam of light. It's very interesting because it lifts you and you're kind of kind of solid light, not solid light, like a kind of weird gel light and you're brought up it goes through the roof through the materials through the walls so i suppose it just maybe shift the density of the atoms um i wouldn't be able to explain it really i was terrified it was horrible and there were um three small grays uh, with uh, black suits glossy black suits very very um, terrifying um, I was floated in the ship, went through an airlock, and they floated me um, through to a to a room. They took my my nightgown very quickly. It, they are very used to that. It's a factory. They they laid me down on table, metallic table. It was quite dark in the ship, but there was this light above me, and uh, I could see few um, devices around, but really only with my peripheral vision because I was paralyzed. Uh, at the moment I, they took me into the beam, I was paralyzed, I was numbed, numb. I could see, my heart could beat, I could breathe and I could hear, but I could not move a muscle. I could not even move mm. my eyeballs, although I had my vision. Mm. I could feel That's the temperature. Oh my God, it, it's, it's traumatizing. It, it's unbelievable. Um, I mean, it's if you haven't gone through it, it's difficult to uh, to make it believable for people, you know, because it's so intense. Um, but it was just um, the start, because when they, you know, I've told this story many times, so it's always um, not easy. They lay me down on this table. They tied my wrist and my ankles and my neck uh, with straps to the table, um, black straps. Uh, the straps of my around my wrist had tiny little needles. That's why I had markings afterwards, had bruises. Um, it injected. I I was explained later that by the positive it is that it injected um, a product. That was to numb my nervous system, hmm. to maintain the paraly paralysis, you know, I suppose. Well, they prepared me. I was only nine. I was not, uh, you know, uh, mature, you know. Mm -hmm. I was a kid. Um, and they, they prepared me. They activated something, um, you know, probably for the, the cycle to come. Um, there's no other case of in my family of somebody having the you know the blood cycle that early nine it's always like 12 14 you know um they inserted something in me um it's quite horrible to talk about so i i feel a bit um 
embarrassed to talk about that, but they inserted something in, within me. It was um, actually two um, empty bags, pot pouches, ready to receive eggs. So they were about to abduct me again to put eggs in it, but they didn't have the opportunity to do that. So they, they put these things in me, but they butchered me a bit because, you know, they go very fast. Mm -hmm. um, I felt the pain, though, and uh, the burned, the burning, you know. Um, but I couldn't move. Could you know? I couldn't even shout. Um, and then there was a, well, there were three of them, and then um, another came, and it was different. The three were uh, like synthetics, um, like robots, like synthetics. They were had no expression. They were tinier, skinnier, and then came another one looking like them, but a little bit bigger, and he looked like biologic, like alive, you know, uh, different. And he smelled like hell, like <laughs> like poo, like rotten eggs. His smell was, was terrible. And this one was seemed to command the other ones. They seemed to talk by telepathy. And sometimes they were exchanging some strange sound, like crackling of insect. It was like mm. um, um, frightening again. Um, and then there was a big, um, a big boom in another room in the ship. And I was terrified at that point, but that terrified even me more. And the, the, the boom and um, men, voices of men shouting. And then the door exploded and there was not smoke, but dust everywhere. And... Um, Maybe it was smoke, I don't remember. And two men, very tall men, entered. They had a spacesuit and helmet, transparent helmet, but with the, you know, the, the room was uh, the dark, kind of dim lights, and uh, with some bright lights above and some places. So the reflections in the room were very difficult. I couldn't see their faces. They shot um, with the laser, like a, like a pen, big pen, uh, the, the synthetics, and uh, one of the men grabbed the, the gray, who seemed to be their, their chief, by the throat and um, strangled him to death. Oh. Was, these grays are um, ugly to, to our standards, you know, and mm -hmm. to poor kids, they, 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 they are ugly and frightening. Um, but seeing one dying strangled that's disgusting, you know. It's it's horrifying. It's it's yeah. It's gross. And nine years old. Yes. Mm. Yes. Um, you know, I'm not the only kid. There's been millions like me. I mm. was just lucky. Um, and the two men undid the straps, and I was cold. You know, I was naked, and uh, it was cold in the ship, and the air was thin. Mm. One of them took me in his arms. They ran with me to the other room where they came from, and I understand I was we were teleported on board another ship because um, there was a big light, feeling of tingles in all my body and like a vortex and flash of light. It's weird, and like a second later, we were in another ship, and the first thing I, I, I. Thought the first thought that went through my head, my mind was, it's warm. 
the, the, the physical sensation it was warm and it it reassured me the fact it was warmer and the air was more breathable it was very bright in the ship it was different ship and um humanoids were there and they took care of me that's how it happened so i don't know if you had questions to the yeah. point or you want me to continue yeah, absolutely well, well just just well maybe yeah let's hear the full story then if you want to continue and then i'll ask some more some okay questions. um there were three men and one woman in this uh ship mm. they were all dressed in blue suit sparkly blue suit the sparkly uh, bit it's because it's uh, full of uh, tiny metallic particles it's like body armor but it's, it's mm. very thin that's why it's glitter it looks like glittery with the light they were all blonde but you could i could distinguish that they had different features that as if they were uh, belonging to different races um so the two men who had rescued me removed their helmets they were very beautiful they had big eyes bigger eyes than, than us the eyes go a little bit farther like this um blue uh, blonde hair uh one had short curly hair and the other one straight long there was a third man uh in the pilot seat he was different again he had a very long face hooked nose thinner slanted eyes dark blue and um, short blonde hair and there was a lady she was um tiny um blonde as well but triangular face it was different race triangular and um big green eyes even bigger eyes small nose um blue suit um and um she she took care of me she she washed the blood um and um she took care of me i don't i couldn't see what she was doing and uh, after that she uh, she tried to remove something i had in my head because the grace had put something in my head i, I forget mm -hmm. to tell that in the, during the the abduction they drilled into my head it was a terrible terribly painful they put something and she tried to remove it and then uh the guy who had rescued me who seemed to be the captain of the ship i suppose he told her well i understand he told her um mm -hmm. to not try to remove this thing because it was difficult apparently where it was but to um hijack it and recalibrate it to their frequencies so i don't know how she did that she she approached different instruments behind my head and suddenly there was a, a big buzz in my head it was very painful and i could hear them speaking then mm. telepathically and i couldn't understand what they were saying wow at that moment i fell asleep and um it induced me the the, the sleep um the lady put her hands in my shoulder and induced me at that time well, yes um forget to say i was naked so the 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 guy who rescued me he removed his jacket and he put it over me it was very warm very heavy <laughs> but very warm it's a spacesuit uh, jacket and i fell asleep um i woke up i had no idea how long after i think it was obviously in the same night i sat and uh, i had this jacket over me and i saw um 
two men sat in the, the pilot seats. There was my rescuer. And I could see a screen in front of them. And there was the earth. And then it hit me. That's when I realized my, my brain was calmed down and I was able to think properly. And that's when I realized I'm in space, on board a spaceship, because that's, wow. that's earth. Wow. And suddenly it was a revelation, you know. Um, well, obviously I, I understood I was taken by aliens, but you know, when you're so traumatized, you don't think, you just sure. go through it. And I saw the earth and the, the guy, the, the rescuer, he, he stood up, he came towards me and he, he reassured me, he said, don't worry, we rescued you. Uh, they do that to children, um, but uh, you are lucky. We were going to bring you back home, but we, we left something in you that we will be able to track you and to look after you and uh, make sure they don't take you again. So we're here for you. Don't worry. It won't happen again. Wow. Yeah. So then and they then brought they, me what, back. Dropped you home? Yeah. Wow. And no one bothered you again? No. I had many what? contacts with these positive ETs after, but the greys never, ever again. So how did they get in touch, the positive people? They, uh, as long as I was a child, uh, about at the rate of about twice a year, they were appearing in my bedroom or either taking me on board their ship. All my childhood until I was about 18. Hmm. Um, it was either my rescuer, the guy with blonde, short, wavy hair, or either the lady. Uh, they would, would be in my room in the night and chat with me or sometimes hmm. take me and uh, show me stuff in the ship, like uh, sit in the, in, in the pilot seats or show me holographic maps of the galaxy, things like this. Uh, they actually gave me um, a holographic I saw it as holographic, but a map of the positions of a few different uh, civilizations. Hmm. Um, and um, at the age of 18, I was in Paris in an art school before doing archaeology. I studied, I had a art degree. And um, they, in the middle of the, you know, the, the school, um, oh. they switched the device on as a communi communicator and mm. it drilled into my head. I had these big statics and I fell on my knees because I was terrified. And I heard his voice speaking to me in French, saying to me, do not worry, we are just um, testing. You know? <laughs> it was the first time I, I heard his voice in my head, otherwise the contacts were only physical and talking like this you know and mm -hmm. um and from this moment and they took me less with them but they rather communicated uh with me like this um, wow well that's pretty interesting i'm just wondering why would these progressive aliens come and find a little girl in um the middle of france somewhere don't they have better bigger plans and things to do they have great bigger plans to do the thing is um they have uh, they have been having fleets saving people trying to rescue as much people as they could from abductions especially children so i was one of these children who was lucky enough to be rescued but i'm not the only one they they 
there are, I don't know how many ships, uh, you know, these people have uh, to the, they used to rescue people like this. Yeah. Mm. And they have There's different, you know, they're very numer numerous. A question from Agent Orange. Did your health change in, in did your health change, including your mindset? A very interesting question. Very good. Um, yes, my health changed because after my abduction, I was hospitalized two months. Um, they couldn't explain the bleeding. Um, it was as if I had been raped, but I hadn't. But it was the same process, you know, uh, not by, I mean, by a, a human. Uh, and to explain the bleedings, um, it, it, it was impossible because, um, you know, I stayed in my bedroom. Nobody came in my room, no, you know. No. So it had to be the period. So the, the doctors had to find a solution. So they, it wasn't the period. They provoked it. I, um, they gave me the pill or something to boost the hormones at that time to, to provoke the period. That's why I uh, last two months in hospital and I had horrible abdominal pain, pains. And uh, I suffered from this all my life because, um, you know, um, I was really fearing the, the end of the month <laughs> all my life because it was it was it was um, unbearable uh, the pain you know because it hadn't been done naturally mm -hmm. naturally i couldn't have children uh, because oh. i was wrecked inside um and um psychologically i had ptsd um i couldn't be, be go to the dentist well i was I had to at some stages, you know, but it was great trauma. Uh, either when I was a kid hiding behind the seat, uh, running, shouting, not willing to open the mouth. It's, it's the sound of the instruments, you know. And um, when I was an adult, I was more reasonable, <laughs> but uh, it was it was it was painful. And as the 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 instruments, the drill would switch on, um, I would close my my legs and very very tightly. You know, and um, mm -mm. that meant what it meant. And so, and so, you was am I right in understanding that you didn't remember this until a recent hypnosis? Yes, yes. But even even the many times they visited you afterwards, that was yes. gone from your memory. Yes, and the guy told me that they they wiped my memory from this night in purpose because it was so traumatic that it would have wrecked my my head. Uh, all my life. So they waited 2018 because they were away for, for a time and they came back. In 2018, okay. they took me on board okay. a ship. I was in Ireland. Uh, it's a famous night of the Shannon incident. You can look it up. I was on board the ships, one of the ships. I can document that. Um, and um, well, um, they told me, we are, now you're ready. We're going to give you back your memory from your abductions. So I started to have the memory through dreams, and it was not nice. So I decided to go for hypnosis because I, I wanted to do it my way and uh, in one go. And that was it. So um took my courage uh -huh. the hypnosis in December 2020 because it was I, I couldn't stand these dreams anymore. Okay, because I'm somebody who suffers from sleep paralysis and some of what you described about not being able to move at all while having very, very vivid 
sense of what is happening around you and a lot of fear is very, very similar to my experience of sleep paralysis. And then you say that you experienced a lot through dream after that, and it was then in hypnosis. So, I mean, how sure can you be that this wasn't a very, very real seeming dream? Because it was it was real. It seemed real. You know, you have different types of dreams. You have dreams like fantasies or the mind releases, you know, um, at this normal process, healthy process of the mind. Then you have, um, you can have premonition dreams, psychic dreams, but you can have also um, remembrance dreams when you have had trauma in your life and it comes back and back yeah. and back. And that seems very real. And then when you see the difference. What's your mission now with your community and you've got the YouTube channel and stuff? What's, what's, what are you thinking now? Well, I'm, I, I think that uh, everyone's story can help other people's stories. Um, so I wrote a book and uh, two books actually telling my story, telling all the information these people, these good people are telling me. And it helped a lot. It it has helped a lot of people uh, who are have been abducted, and to to find who abducts them, uh, you know, and things like this. Um, and I um, I do a lot of meditation because I'm a spiritual person, um, and uh, I do meditations to help people to find who they really are, you know, um, and find the serenity and the strength and the confidence within themselves um take their power back i do a lot of this and that's my my channel what it is about informing people about diseases and helping everyone to find their power back that's what i'm doing what do you think of the recent uap which is the unidentified aerial phenomena sightings um and and that big u.s congressional hearing about ufos well i think it's another um staged thing the governments will never themselves i mean the, the actual governments in power will never tell us the truth about it is because if they did they would be in serious trouble you know yeah. because they the agreements they made with the the governments in the past in the 1950s uh they are in it like the like here you know um they they wouldn't um you know, um, so this it is just to say, oh yeah, UFOs are real. Um, now we we think they are real. Yeah, no kidding. Um, but um, they they always want to uh, keep some uh, you know an option aside to prepare stage kind of alien invasion. But I don't think it will happen now because people are aware and it won't work. But you know in case of yes ufo are real there may be a threat um you know things like that come on we we know all about that you know we will you just stop that and just tell the truth they won't and uh, it's it's the abductees and the contactees who are the, the disclosure not the governance mm. you know so i think it's just to uh it's not very uh help helpful this this these kind of congresses well okay thank well thank you and where can people find you and follow you where do you want to send people well you can follow me on my youtube channel um, elena danan um, i have a lot of interesting things there my website elena 
org o r g you find everything about me and also how to get my my books oh, well there you go you heard it everyone go and follow elena danan it's lovely and uh, interesting really fascinating uh, easy e saying some nice things thank you and bless your soul lovely woman she says so thank you very much for coming on elena thank you so much thank you thank you a, a plus dans le bus like they say in france <laughs> <laughs>